1940, C.S. Lewis, an Oxford professor and former atheist, wrote a book answering this question. How, if the world is so bad, do humans ever attribute it to a benevolent deity? C.S. Lewis concluded that the existence of human pain and the existence of hell are not sufficient reasons to reject belief in a good and powerful God. In summarizing the usefulness of pain in life, C.S. Lewis wrote this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. Pain is the megaphone to rouse, pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain gets our attention. Pain makes us sit up and take notice. That notion resonates with many people. Over the years, I have to say that so many people have told me how they were just sort of tooling along, minding their own business, living their own lives, without a second thought to God's existence, and then wham, out of nowhere, they get a call, or feel a pain, or, or receive some bad news. And it's at that moment that they found themselves looking to the heavens, and before they knew it, they were face to face with the God that they'd never before believed in. But they've believed in him ever since. The pain was the megaphone that got their attention. Now, other people have told me the opposite story, that the pain in the world, or even the pain that, that they or someone they love was suffering, caused them to doubt God. The pain was the thing that actually caused them to lose their faith. Now, it's curious how people with similar experiences with pain can come to such very different conclusions when it comes to faith and when it comes to God. And that's what we're going to be talking about today as we try to understand what is required of, of us as we live here in the messy middle. So let's pray and we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, thank you again for gathering us together. Father, you are all powerful. You created all of this. We live here at your pleasure. We live here because of you. God, as we take a look at your word today and try to reconcile the pain in the world and your presence in it, help us to understand you better. Help us to feel more closely connected to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Anybody remember this guy? Admiral James Stockdale. Some of you guys who are closer to my vintage probably remember him. He ran for vice president back in the 1990s. He was uh, on Ross Perot's ticket. He was Ross Perot's vice presidential candidate. Had a terrible debate that he wasn't prepared for. It was kind of sad. But actually, he's best known for the fact that he was a vice admiral in the Navy and a POW prisoner of war during the Vietnam War. In fact, Stockdale was the highest-ranking United States military officer to be held in the infamous Hanoi Hilton. That was, the, that was the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese prison that was so, so terrible, had such a bad reputation. 
He was a prisoner in the Hanoi Hilton for eight years. And during that eight years, Admiral Stockdale was tortured over 20 times for, among other reasons, refusing to be used by the North Vietnamese for propaganda. You know how that happens, right? They take a prisoner and put him on camera or film, film him or her and get them to say bad things about America. But Admiral Stockdale was so set on not helping the North Vietnamese out, on not being able to be used for them by them for propaganda, that he actually took a razor and disfigured his own face so they couldn't put him on camera. Well, years later, after he was freed, and after he had had some extraordinary accomplishments, Jim Collins interviewed him. Jim Collins wrote the fairly famous book called Good to Great. And if you haven't read it, I recommend it to you. It's a, it's a really good book. But Collins interviewed him while he was writing Good to Great. And in the interview, Jim Collins asked Admiral Stockdale the question that all of us would ask. How did you do it? How in the world were you able to survive eight years in a POW camp during the Vietnam War? And Admiral Stockdale replied, I never lost faith in the end of the story. And he explained, I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which, in retrospect, and catch this, he said, I would not trade. Can you imagine being a prisoner of the North Vietnamese for eight years, tortured 20 times, and yet he would not trade the experience? Now, Collins followed up with another question. He said, well, you made it out. Tell me about the people who didn't make it out. And Stockdale's answer surprised everybody. He said, well, that's an easy one. The optimists didn't make it out. Collins said, what do you mean by the optimists? And Stockdale said, the optimists were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And then Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they would say, we're going to be out by Easter. And then Easter would come, and Easter would go, and then it was Thanksgiving. And they'd say, we're going to be out by Thanksgiving, which would come and go, and then it would be Christmas again. And Stockdale went on to say this, those folks, those men died of a broken heart. And then he turned to Collins, and he said this. He said, what I'm about to say is so very important. What I'm about to say next is the lesson to take away from all this. And here's what he said. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever that might be. That today is known as the Stockdale Paradox. A paradox, of course, is a statement that on the surface doesn't make any sense, but ultimately proves to be true. This paradox that the paradox that that was pointing to is to never give up hope, but also at the same time, this requires some cognitive dissonance. It requires holding two conflicting ideas in your head at the same time and being okay with it. Never give up hope, but also never deceive yourself about your current reality. You must never give up hope, but you also must never refuse to face the things that would possibly cause you to lose hope. 
You have to hold on to both of those things in life. Never give up hope and never deceive yourself about current reality. And the reason that we're talking about this here and today is because our faith, the Christian faith, includes a similar paradox. And the similar paradox in the Christian faith is this. We have a future hope that is tethered to a brutal fact. And the problem is, for many of us as Christians, is that we get so focused on the hope that we try to pray away or behave away or hope away or obey away the brutal fact that is part of the package. The brutal fact of Christianity is that there is a cause and effect relationship between sin and suffering. Now, as Christians, that point is quite easy to lose sight of, especially when things are going really well for you. But if you lose sight of it when things are going well, it creates confusion, it creates faithlessness, it creates doubt, and it creates despair when things aren't going well, when things turn upside down. Now, we all know this on a personal level, because all of us have done bad things, have done things that we consider bad, and we've suffered because of it. We could sit down and regale each other for hours of all the dumb things we've done and all the trouble we got into as we did them. And I, by the way, I hope you understand and realize, and I try to make sure everybody does this, just because I get to stand on a stage a little bit higher than the floor here, I'm right there with you, okay? You can ask my wife. We've all experienced that pain from sin. But the brute fact that's so tough for many people to get their mind around is and get their hearts around is this. The cause and effect relationship between sin and suffering goes beyond our personal behavior. The brutal fact is that there is a global relationship between sin and suffering. And as humans, we absolutely hate that fact. And that we resist. We resist it like crazy. And the reason we hate it and the reason we resist it is because it's not fair. It's not fair and it robs us of our control and we think we need to have control and we have to have control in our lives. But the truth is, when sin entered the world, sin opened the door. And in through the open door behind it came sorrow and came death and came illness and came despair. They came in, into the world right behind sin. When sin entered the world, death came along with it. This is the worldview that Jesus assumed. The brutal, scary, aggravating, irritating worldview that Jesus assumed. Jesus did all his teaching based upon that assumption. Though the message of Jesus was a message of hope, his message never lost sight of the difficult fact that sin was weaving its way through the world and would touch every single one of us. This was the worldview that Jesus lived with and left us with in the Gospels. So I want to show you some biblical examples of exactly the way the Gospels deal with this. All right, so first we go to John's Gospel. As he went along, as Jesus went along, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him this question, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man 
or his parents that he was born blind. So from their question, we can surmise, rightly so, that they understood that there was a relationship between blindness or illness and sin. But they clearly misunderstood how it worked. From their question, we can see that they believed that the relationship was basically a direct cause and effect between sin and consequence. The guy must have done something wrong, and he went blind. Or his parents must have done something wrong, and the man went blind. Essentially, they viewed the world in such a way that good things happened to good people, and bad things happened to bad people, or bad things happened to sinners. They failed to understand the relationship of sin and suffering sorrow, and death. They fail to understand that that is not a one-to-one relationship, but it's a global relationship. So look how Jesus responds. He says, and I think he prefaced it with, no, you knuckleheads. That's in another version of the Bible. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. In other words, Jesus told the disciples, no, you guys missed it. Now, by this, Jesus didn't mean that the parents never sinned. That's not what he meant. But rather, that no one's personal sin caused this man's blindness. It was the sin that's coursing through the world that led to his blindness. He continues on in verse 3. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus said, but God's purpose for this blindness caused by the worldwide effects of sin was to illustrate for people that he, <clears throat> that he, that Jesus, as the Son of God, has the power over the worldwide impact of sin. That Jesus is the solution to the world's sin problem for every person in the world. And from this, we see that God would use his power over the consequences of sin to draw attention to himself. It was then that Jesus began a little teaching moment. And as you read through the Gospels, you begin to see this. You begin to see the descriptions of what happened. And then Jesus would break into these little teaching moments along the way. And so here's what he said in verse 4. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Jesus referring to God the Father. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, this was likely a little bit confusing for his disciples, as was much of Jesus' teachings in, in parables and riddles and stories. So Jesus went on, and here's what Jesus said next. He said, well, I'm in the world. I am the light of the world. Jesus said, as long as I'm here, I am going to conspicuously display my power over the worldwide consequences of sin, over the core that drives the problems of the whole world, over sin. Do you see it? Jesus gives us hope for the future, but there's still a difficult fact that we cannot lose sight of in the meantime, lest we lose our faith. Jesus will deliver hope for the future, but there still exists a worldwide sin problem. All right, so here's another illustration. Jesus was back up north in Capernaum. That's the place where he basically based his earthly ministry. There he went into somebody's house and began to teach. We go to Mark chapter 2, verse 2. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left. And in his house, crowded in the house, nobody, no room left. Not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Well, before long, some men came along. And they brought to him a paralyzed man. So four men carrying a paralyzed man on a stretcher. Some guys show up at the house. 
and they have their friend with them who's paralyzed, and they bring their friend to Jesus so that Jesus could heal him. But the house was too full. So what did they do? Well, they climbed up on the roof with the guy. The roofs in those days were made of dirt and sticks and mud and stuff. So they climbed up on the roof. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. So imagine this. The house is packed. These crazy guys climb up on the roof. They dig a big hole while Jesus is teaching, and they drop him down right in the middle of the room. Well, Jesus kind of noticed this while he was teaching in the middle of the house. And so what does he say? He looks up and he sees their faith. And he says to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw the faith that they had in him, that he could heal their friend, he told the paralyzed man not that he'd been healed. But instead he told him that his sins had been forgiven which was not what they came to Jesus for. So why did Jesus say that? Well, it's because he was pointing to the fact that there is a relationship between sin and sickness. Not because of personal one-on-one sin, but because of the presence of sin in the world. Because of the worldwide, worldwide existence of sin and sickness. Now, There were religious leaders present in the house. They always were there to pay attention to the words Jesus was speaking, to make sure he wasn't blaspheming. Well, uh uh-oh, they didn't like this, not one little bit. So they said in verse 7, he is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They were saying, essentially, what does this guy think he's doing? What does he think he's saying? Only God can forgive sins. So we ask ourselves the question, why then? Why did Jesus say that? And we all collectively say, well, duh. That was Jesus' whole point. And so Jesus did what Jesus often did. He answered their question with another question. Verse 9. He said to them, well, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven. It's easy to say your sins are forgiven. I can say that to you all. Your sins are forgiven. See how easy that was? Anyone can say it, right? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Now, Jesus said this because those two things are connected. The sin in the world, not the man's personal sin, but the sin in the world and the man's paralysis are connected. And so Jesus continues and said this, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus said to them, in other words, I want you to know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to remove the consequences of sin in the world. So now you should know with whom you are speaking. And so how did Jesus prove that? How did Jesus prove that he had the power to forgive sin as well as the consequences of sin in the world? How did he do it? Well, he eliminated those consequences. So then he said to the man, I tell you, get to get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man did just that. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, the crowd saw it. They saw someone who could overcome worldwide sin, and they saw that he was in their midst. Now, another illustration. This time it comes from the Apostle Paul. 
When writing to the believers living in Rome, Paul explained how notwithstanding the difficult fact that sin has infected the whole world, as followers of Jesus, we're to cling to our hope. So here's what Paul said in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people, because all sin. So Paul explained that sin is everywhere. Sin is ubiquitous. Sin is everywhere. Sin impacts everyone. And it came into the world through one man, through Adam, just as sin entered the world through one man. And along with sin came death. Death entered the world, and death infected all people. Death came to all people because all people sin. After entering the world through Adam, death, along with its accomplices, illness, sadness, madness, depression, fear, all of that, marched through the world. And we can't pray it away, and we can't wish it away, and we can't obey it away, and we can't hope it away. This is the unvarnished truth. This is the reality that is so difficult for us to wrap our hearts around, to wrap our minds around. And if you disconnect your hope in Jesus from this unvarnished truth, you will run the risk of losing your faith. If you believe this Bible is true, there is no way around this. But we still don't like it because it's just not fair. But facts aren't fair. Facts are facts. And each of us, to one degree or another, has experienced this reality. And some of us have experienced it time and time again. And though we wish, and we all deep down wish, that there was a correlation, there was a one-on-one correlation, we wish that good things happen to good people and bad things only happen to bad people, even though we wish those things, we need to face reality. That's not how the world works. So here's what you need to know. That's not how Jesus taught us the world works. And if you've lost your faith, or you're struggling with your faith, or you're trying to find your faith because you didn't understand how you could be a Christian and still suffer and still feel the impact of sin in your life, well, then you haven't understood what Jesus taught. If you try to hold on to the myth that good things only happen to good people and bad things only happen to bad people, your faith will eventually be crushed by the weight of the world. So please don't ever lose sight of this. The followers of Jesus have never believed that to be true. Christians have never believed that God doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people. In fact, Christians believe just the opposite. And if you believe that Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people and God doesn't let bad things happen to good people. You're going to feel a lot like Homer Simpson when I tell you this. Christians believe that the worst possible thing happened to the best possible person. So we ask ourselves the question, all right, then what do we do with this? Should we resist evil? Well, of course we should. And should we fight and try to solve the problems of the world? Absolutely we should. And should we try to alleviate the pain and suffering in the world? Yes, absolutely we should, without a doubt. But when we do those things, should we expect that we will win the battle in the end? 
Not in any way. That's not a battle we're going to win. Because that is not our ultimate battle. See, as we've been discussing for the past few weeks, fixing this world is not, 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 not our ultimate battle. We, as followers, followers of Jesus, are to have hope. But not a hope of remedying the consequences of sin in our world. Our hope is in the person who came to address the ultimate issue, who came to address the issue of sin. And the painful reality of Christianity is that there is a relationship between sin in the world which leads to sorrow and ultimately death. Paul continued, For if by the trespass of one man, talking about Adam here, death reigned, death reigned through that one man, so Paul's saying, look, this is the reality. We live in a world where death reigns. Death will take every one of us. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? All right, so let's figure out what this means. Here, God's provision of grace is the thing that enables us to endure. And it's God's gift of righteousness that's our assurance that our relationship with God is durable and it is secure. It's not going anywhere. So Paul's saying this, if death reigned through one man, Adam, who brought sin into the world, how much more will we, how much more will those of us who have a relationship with our Heavenly Father reign in life through one man, Jesus the Messiah. But we need to remember that we reign in life only by embracing this paradox. We reign in this world by embracing the paradox that sin will have its way today, but not forever. Or to paraphrase Jesus, we don't reign in life by devoting our lives to preserving our lives. That's the win that we can never win. We reign in life by following the one who offered real life, eternal life, and the ultimate and final solution for sin. See, remember, Jesus didn't offer himself as the final solution to sin from the comforts of his heavenly home. He didn't just scream down a dictate. Jesus became one of us to experience exactly what we experience. The apostle John begins his gospel with these words. He said, the word, in Greek it's the logos. The logos is Jesus, so say, or, or God the Son. So you can say, God the Son became flesh. Jesus became flesh. Jesus took on a human body. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus became flesh. Jesus faced what we face and felt what we feel. And about that, Paul said in Philippians 2.6, who... Being in very nature God, talking about Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Jesus, the one who became flesh, the one who became God in a body, refused to use the fact that he was God himself to get out of experiencing life as it is, with all its pain and all its sorrows. And Paul kept on going. Rather, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Our Savior experienced 
firsthand the ultimate consequence of sin, death, and not just any death, but the worst kind of death imaginable in that day. And there's more. Here's how the author of Hebrews put it. For we do not have a high priest, that's speaking of Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weakness. Referring to the fact that weakness is an integral part of the human condition that can't be prayed away and it can't be ignored and it can't be forgotten. So the writer of Hebrews continued, but we do have a high priest to whom we can go in prayer that understands us and that can empathize with us. Here's what he says. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And based upon all of that, he finishes up with an instruction for us. The author of Hebrews left us with marching orders for what we're to do while we stay here, while we continue to live here in the messy middle, in the space between the knowledge of our guaranteed future hope and the reality of our pain, illness, and suffering in a death-filled world. And it's the instruction we need to help us endure the horrors that are part and parcel of the human life here on earth. Here is how to live in the messy middle. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, the authors of the New Testament were well acquainted with the suffering that exists in our world because their suffering in that time 2,000 years ago is the same kind of suffering that is present in our time. And so the author of Hebrews says, when you're in the midst of suffering and pain, when you're stuck in the messy middle, realize that I'm also caught in the messy middle, but know that there's hope. There's hope that even though there's a broken and sinful and pain-filled world that you can't avoid, you have a heavenly father that you can go to who promises you that you will receive mercy and grace in your time of need. And one more again from Paul, the man who was literally awakened by the megaphone of pain while, while on his way to inflict pain and punishment on believers in the first century. Remember, Paul was on the road to Damascus ready to deliver punishment to the believers of Jesus. And here's what that Paul said. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Though none of us will avoid suffering in the present, that suffering amounts to nothing when compared to the future glory that will be, will be revealed in us because, verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. He continued, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, even those of us who follow Jesus, we all groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, for the redemption of our bodies. And then with all of this set out, Paul told us that we can have hope. For in this hope, for in this hope, not the hope that everything's going to work itself out today, not in the hope that everything's going to work itself out for us eventually. Not in the hope that everything's going to be great for us now, but instead it's an ultimate hope that Jesus came to earth, not only to die for our sins, but also to demonstrate for us that he has the power over the worldwide consequences of sin. So we currently live in a tension point 
the tension of the messy middle, where we know what a dangerous mess our world is. And I just got back from spending some time in the subways in New York, and I'm going to tell you, the world is a dangerous mess. And yet we maintain hope for the future that we could have confidence in. And though we prefer for that not to be true, and I certainly would prefer for that not to be true, we need to know it is true. Don't ever forget it. When sin entered the world, death came in right behind it. And not even our Savior, not even the perfect one, was exempted from the rule that death became part of the world when sin became part of the world. Okay, so even though God didn't cause it, God will use it. God will use it as a wake-up call to awaken this world, to get us to look up and to find our hope. The pain and the suffering in this world can serve as a wake-up call for anyone who has ears to hear. One day, the world will be as we know it should be. One day, there will be no more sin, no more sorrow, and no more death. But not yet. And most likely, not for you and not for me. Although, who knows? But this brings us back to C.S. Lewis who put it so very well when he wrote this. If I, find myself a, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, in other words, if I long for a better world, if there is something in me that longs for a better world, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If we long for a better world, the most likely explanation is that we were made for a better world. Admiral Stockdale was right. We must never lose faith in the end of the story. You see, Hammock Street, we're not at the end. We're here in the messy middle. And in this messy middle, we can still have confidence that the New Testament authors had that same confidence when they told us that we can have confidence in God, confidence that God loves us, that God is for us, and that God cares for us. And we can have confidence that God will judge sin, but also that he loves those of us left in the wake of his judgment on sin. And as we've seen, God had every right to leave us on our own. But instead, he chose to wade in and experience this life as we experience it, along with our present sufferings. We have to never forget that our present sufferings are nothing compared to the future hope that we have. Our present sufferings are merely another reminder of the global consequences of sin and our desperate need for a Savior. Our present sufferings are just another reminder that one day, God will return and make all things new. So whatever megaphone God uses to rouse our deaf world, the question is, will we listen and will we respond? We're going to end today on two questions that I want you to ponder until we get together again next week. So here are the questions. Number one, did you grow up believing that there was a one-to-one -one correlation between bad behavior and suffering? Were you raised to believe that the good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people? So think about that. And the second question is this. What is or what has been your go-to explanation for why good people suffer? Got those? 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for your promise and your provision. Father, for the man or the woman or the student or the teenager or the senior adult, whoever it might be, who needs a big dose of grace and mercy today, Father, I pray that you would provide that for them through somebody they talk to, through something they hear, through a song, through whatever it might be. Father, help them to know and have confidence in the writers of the New Testament to know that you are with them and know that you will give them the grace that they need to endure whatever they're facing. Lord, help them to see their situation the way that you see it and give them eyes to see themselves the way that you see them and then give them eyes to see you the way you are. Father, we're humbled by the fact that you would call us We're humbled by the fact that you would use us and we're absolutely blown away by the fact that you still love us. We love you and we pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus who suffered for our sin. Amen.